Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. There's a saying about aging gracefully, but new research into longevity aims to learn the science behind those who live many years and who remain healthy, both physically and mentally. This certain population of people are called super agers. Certainly Queen Elizabeth was one, passing away at age 96, making her Britain's longest reigning monarch. But she was a queen. How do regular people live that long? What do I attribute to my long life? Uh, good genes from my parents, I guess. No, no stress in the house. I've just had an easy life, and I've been lucky all the way. It all went easy. Just before Christmas, I will be 101. That's Jules Bashkin of West Haven, a retired mattress salesman, speaking with producer Sudhata Srinivasan. Jules plays the saxophone in the Survivors Swing Band. Today, where we live, we learned about a new study aimed towards super-agers who are at least 95 years old. Coming up, we talked to one of the researchers behind the Super-Agers initiative that will take saliva samples from these almost centenarians to learn more about the biology of aging. This research could help expand the promise of therapeutics to extend the number of healthy years we could live. Now, do you have relatives who are more than 90 years or even 100 years old? Think it's only good genes or other factors? We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on Facebook or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Dr. Sophia Millman, Director of the Human Longevity Studies at the Institute for Aging Research at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Sophia, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. It's good to be with you and with your listeners. It was good to hear from Jules Bashkin, who says he'll turn 101 later this year. I also wanted to play a clip from the Guinness World Records. Here it is. Tip number one, don't die. So the first and yes, the most obvious tip is just don't die. So let's just imagine that we could magically put aside all our medical conditions. And if you didn't die of a natural cause, you would be expected to live on average until the grand old age of, now wait for it, 8,938 years. Uh, Dr. Melman, I'm wondering if you can respond uh, to that clip. In reality, when we think about the human lifespan, uh, what's more on average? So the average lifespan uh, right now is about um, 84 years old. Uh, women do live a few years longer than men, uh, but that's the average. Mm. And when we think about even the last two years, uh, life expectancy here in our country has 
decrease because of COVID. Uh, the CDC uh, finds uh, data life of on, on life expectancy uh, dropped from 77 years in 2020 to 76 years uh, last year. And so certainly the pandemic uh, played a part in that, uh, Sophia. But when we think about longevity, you know, I, I pose the question to our listeners, you know, how much do genes play in this uh, fact that some can live uh, over 90 years old and are relatively healthy? So there's uh, rather good evidence uh, from our research and from many other um, researchers. The genes play a significant role uh, in defining longevity and particularly in defining exceptional longevity. Um, so we know that the lifespan is influenced by genetics. Uh, about 20 to 40% um, has been explained by genetics, but that number increases the longer one lives so that these individuals who live exceptionally long lives uh, are more likely to have ha- inherited uh, longevity in their families. Mm. Uh, many of our listeners have heard about these uh, so-called blue zones, that there are parts of the world where people live longer than others. Uh, some of them include in Okinawa in Japan, Sardinia in, in Italy. And so I wanted you to talk about that when we think about, you know, some of the factors that research has researchers have found that, you know, certain areas of where people live, they tend to live a longer, healthier lives, Sophia. So that is um, absolutely true. There are certain areas uh, around the world uh, that have greater numbers of long-living individuals um, compared to others. Now, I'd say the jury's still out as to why those areas uh, are more conducive to longer-living individuals, whether it is environmental or maybe the lack uh, of certain environmental stressors, or whether it is genetic, because many individuals in those areas are uh, relatively isolated or have been isolated uh, for decades. And so I think we still need to understand uh, specifically what it is, uh, environmental, genetic, or likely a combination of both that are contributing to their longevity. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. Jonathan is calling in. I understand your your grandmother fits the bill as a superager, Jonathan? Yes, my grandmother, uh, 98 years old, uh, 98 years young, um, <laughs> and she, uh, you know, hasn't exercised a day in her life, uh, ate, you know, ate American uh, mid-century diet of canned foods and other processed foods, um, and yet you know here she is at age 98. So, and, and she has some uh, uh, folks in her uh, family who lived uh, very old. So, I, I tend to think that it uh, has uh, a lot to do with genetics. So, Jonathan, you think you'll make it to the 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 uh, upper 90s like your grandmother? <laughs> Um, I, I can only hope. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing uh, that with us. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. It was interesting, Sophia, that he talked about, you know, her lifestyle, and um, it wasn't like she was eating, you know, only um, uh, healthy food. And so it is interesting when th- people think about, you know, what it takes to, to live a long and healthy life. We think about diet, uh, number one, but also you talked about environment. Yeah, so that was very interesting what Jonathan has said. And we have found in one of our studies uh, that our long-living centenarians did not practice a healthier lifestyle compared to their peers. 
So they were no less likely to smoke, not no less likely to consume alcohol, and were not more likely to exercise, which was um, in some ways surprising to us, but perhaps not, uh, because we do think genetics have a lot to do with it. That said, uh, we think those individuals achieved longevity not because of their environment, right, or but in spite of it. So despite not practicing a healthy lifestyle, they were able to live long lives, again, likely due to the protective effect of some of the genes that they possess. Mm. But we should be very careful about um, extrapolating that to the rest of the population, because for most of us who likely do not have longevity genes or these protective genes that protect us from the negative effects of the environment, living a healthy lifestyle is very important and can lead to a healthier, longer life. Well, one of the reasons we're talking with you today is you're the principal investigator of a new study called Super Agers. It's being funded through the American Federation of Aging Research. So, so tell us about it and what you're trying to get at the root when we think about in terms of, of aging well. Because of some of uh, the prior work that was done uh, by us and many other investigators uh, and the strong evidence in favor of genetics contributing to healthy longevity, uh, we launched uh, the study in the collaboration with American Federation for Aging Research in order to expand the number of super agers that we can learn from. Uh, anytime you do a genetic study, uh, you really need large numbers of individuals in order to identify uh, those super ager genes. Uh, and that's really the goal of the studies to enroll um, about 10,000 uh, super agers uh, is our goal over the next uh, couple of years uh, so that we can begin to unravel uh, the genetic uh, contribution uh, to healthy longevity. Mm. And I understand that the you're recruiting 10,000, as you mentioned, but people age 95 or older. So what is it about that age that makes them a super ager, Sophia? So we're really interested in extremes uh, of age, uh, and we thought 95 would be, you know, pretty, pretty extreme, um, considering the average lifespan in the United States, um, of anywhere between you know, 70 to 80 years. Uh, so these people are above average lifespan, uh, and so anyone who's uh, 95 and maintains uh, reasonable cognitive function, whether they can understand what the study is about and can willingly participate, uh, we would consider a super ager. You can join us as we talk about longevity here where we live, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. With me on Zoom, Dr. Sophia Millman, who's director of the Human Longevity Studies at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine's Institute for Aging Research. Uh, so we actually ha have a clip from one of uh, the participants in the Super Agers study. Her name is Elaine. Let's hear a little bit from her. Uh, most of the time I use public transportation. I enjoy going to the 97th Street Y where I socialize with people of my own age and I play bridge and uh, take courses in Shakespeare or uh, whatever they're offering that's of interest to me. I do two poetry classes, both on Zoom right now. I do exercise also virtually from the Y. My days are very full every day. I have a program set up. I take care of all my own financial businesses. 
and I have extreme support from all of my children who call me every single night. <laughs> so it's good to hear from Elaine, who stays very busy, but she also talks about the the relationships that she has. Uh, she said extreme support from all of her children who call her every night, uh, Sophia. So tell us what else is common among super agers like Elaine. So we do think that having social support and uh, social engagement um, is important. Um, other than that, you know, they're, they're quite varied. Um, I'm not sure that there are other factors um, that define superagers. Uh, they do have longevity in their families, uh, as we have spoken about earlier. So that's uh, something that they often do share in common. Uh, but other than that, um, they're quite uh, different people who come from different walks of life, have had different life experiences, have been exposed to different stressors. Uh, some people in our study uh, have lived through the war, uh, World War II. Um, so there isn't really a definition, I think, that would be common to all of them. Mm. When we think of aging, we, we do think of you know, there are age-related uh, diseases that are more common. And can you walk us through what some of those are, uh, Sophia? And when we think about super-agers, you know, are they free of these particular diseases? Yeah, so I think most of the listeners will recognize um, the diseases that we associate with advanced age, uh, such as cancer, heart disease, strokes, uh, diabetes, um, osteoporosis, um, high blood pressure. Um, so these are conditions that become much more prevalent uh, as an individual ages. Uh, what's remarkable about superagers is that many of them escape from these diseases altogether, but if they don't, they delay the onset of these diseases by as much as 20 to 30 years. Um, and of course, an important one um, is Alzheimer's disease and cognitive um, decline that the superagers uh, also um, delay. Uh, by just as uh, many decades. And so even if they don't escape from these diseases, being able to delay them uh, by as much as two decades is really advantageous uh, to their quality of life. Mm. We're hearing from another listener, uh, Brian, calling in from Southampton. Uh, Brian, uh, tell us about some of your relatives who are, are super agers or getting close. Well, I have two sort of contrasting stories to tell. One is my mother-in-law, who is alive, who is 92, who teaches water aerobics three days a week at her condo, whose social calendar exhausts me just hearing about it. I mean, constantly busy, lots of friends, lots of uh, mental activity, you know, bridge and mahjong and follows the news. You're know, very active, alert, and, and connected to a very large family. The other story I have to tell is my paternal grandfather, who lived uh, very late in life, uh, very long. He's, he's died now. Uh, but in during his life, uh, I'm going to say he appeared to do everything in his power to not live long, meaning all the you know, smoking, um, drinking too much, uh, was not a very social person. Um, no exercise that I know of, and yet lived almost tonight. I died right before he was 90 years old. So I'm looking at these two stories that seem to have nothing in common except for the outcome. 
Right. Well, Brian, thank you for telling us about your relatives. It's interesting to hear uh, that perspective, uh, Sophia. And when I mentioned that super ager study, so this was uh, Brian's mother-in-law who is 92, but you're also going to be, I think, recruiting the children of super agers. So tell us more about that. Right. So because we're really interested in factors that are inherited, we're very much um, focused on the children of these super agers as well, because we believe many of them uh, have likely inherited uh, their genes, the protective genes or the super ager genes from their parents. Um, and so in addition to enrolling the super agers in our study, we will also uh, invite other children to participate as well as the spouses of the children who may not have longevity in their family. Uh, but it is important for us to study the full spectrum um, of aging. And so how long will you be recruiting these participants? And when we think about getting a, a wide variety, you know, will it be challenging to get um, diverse participants to, to, to participate in this in terms of both gender and race? Right. So that's a very important question. Uh, we're, we're planning to have the study go on for about three years. Uh, we'll be launching in late October. We're very much interested in including uh, people from all diverse ethnic groups, racial groups, um, backgrounds. That is really important to us because we want the study to be representative uh, of all groups uh, so that we can learn as much as we can uh, about healthy longevity. Um, and, you know, in terms of representation of the different um, genders, we are going to recruit um men and women, although we recognize that among the super agers, we're much more likely to recruit women than men because of the longer lifespans that women have. And in our previous studies, about 70 to 75% of our super agers uh, were females. Mm. And we expect that we might um, find the same thing here. Mm. Except for in Sardinia, right? I believe uh, the men were ones that, that lived longer uh, than the women, but definitely interesting, again, uh, to hear when we think about our country and uh, life expectancy, uh, Sophia. So listeners are probably interested in how they're going to enroll. So can you tell us uh, where they can go? Absolutely. Uh, so right now uh, we have uh, created uh, with American Federation for Aging Research a super agers community. Um, and the website for that is uh, www.afar.org um, forward slash superagers. Uh, so listeners who are interested can go on that website and learn more about superagers and about what the study will entail. And in late October, when the study launches, there will be uh, a link uh, to enroll in the study. Um, and if individuals are interested in learning more, um, they'll be able uh, to do so there. And what the study will entail is a collection of basic medical information uh, from the individual um, information about their environment, um, their um, experiences in life. And then we will also mail them a saliva kit to their home uh, so they can just swab their cheek or you know, give us a saliva sample and mail back the kit. And we will use that saliva to extract uh, DNA uh, that we will then um, use to study um, superager genes. And all the information that we collect, including the genetic information, the personal health information, uh, will be kept secure 
um, under um, very um, tight regulatory uh, security. Mm. So it will not be released. Uh, coming up, we're going to be talking about the role of wellness uh, to help people achieve uh, longevity. Before we head to break, uh, though, uh, Dr. Sophia Millman, you know, I'm wondering when we think about superager genes, when we think about the process of aging, you know, what can you tell us about these particular genes that help some um, able to, uh, you know, live longer and remain healthy? Sure. So some of the genes that we know about. Um, actually have been shown to extend a healthy lifespan in many different organisms. So they seem to be evolutionary conserved. Um, The same set of genes that extend the life of worms uh, and fruit flies and mice are very likely to also play a role in human longevity. And some of the genes that have been identified are specifically related uh, to the growth hormone um, an insulin pathway. And despite uh, what some of them, you know, in uh, today's um, world may say, what research has shown is that actually having less growth hormone uh, in older individuals uh, promotes uh, healthier and longer life. And we think that's because you shift energy away from growth, which becomes much less important when you're already a full-grown adult, uh, towards maintenance and repair, which are processes that allow one to maintain good health as one ages. You're hearing Dr. Sophia Millman here where we live, director of the Human Longevity Studies at the Einstein Institute for Aging Research in New York. She's the principal investigator of this new study we've been talking about on superagers. They're recruiting 10,000 people ages 95 and older. Now, coming up, we're going to continue talking about longevity, and we'd love to hear from you. Do you have loved ones in their 90s or even over 100? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. What questions do you have? You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What leads some of us to live well into our 90s or past 100? We're exploring the science behind longevity with my guest, Dr. Sophia Millman, Director of Human Longevity Studies at Einstein College of Medicine's Institute for Aging Research. As we mentioned earlier, in the U.S., life expectancy has dropped for the second year in a row, Fueled by the pandemic, the Washington Post reports provisional data from the National Center for Health Statistics, part of the CDC, show life expectancy dropped from 77 years in 2020 to 76 years last year. Life expectancy for Native Americans dropped to 65 years old in 2021. White people had the second biggest drop, losing a full year of life expectancy, followed by black residents. Now, helping people live longer, healthier lives goes beyond treating disease. My next guest focuses on improving wellness outcomes. UConn Health's Dr. Patrick Call from the Center on Aging co-authored an analysis of Medicare's annual wellness visits that were first instituted about 10 years ago. Call and his fellow authors found that one-size-fits-all approach needs an upgrade. Uh, Dr. Patrick Call again joins us, Medical Director for Senior Health at UConn Health. He's on Zoom with us. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Patrick, can you hear us? Oh, it looks like uh, Patrick is having trouble hearing us. And uh, oh, are you there now? <laughs> Dr. Call, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. All right, you're on the air now. I'm glad that we're able to, to hear you now. So, so tell us about when we think about the pandemic first and uh, how social isolation has impacted the geriatric population in general. Yeah, there's no question that COVID has had significant negative impacts on older adults. Um, I was the medical director of a skilled nursing facility when the pandemic uh, began in 2020 and, and witnessed firsthand how serious an illness that could be for older adults. And then we saw negative impacts from some of the restrictions that were put in place to try and protect older adults. I think initially in the early stages of the pandemic, that was the appropriate approach. Uh, but there were negative ramifications from folks not having access to their families, to exercise, to social engagement. And so we've seen some negative impacts from that, too. Now, how do these outcomes vary by zip code? So life expectancy, we talked, you talked earlier about life expectancy, and I think it's important to point out that pre pandemic, pre the COVID pandemic, but life expectancy for people over 65 has been increasing quite dramatically over the last 40 or 50 years. By about three years every decade, uh, life expectancy for Americans over 65 has been increasing. Now that hasn't been a uniform increase in life ex expectancy. And there's no question that various socioeconomic determinants of health also have a major impact on life expectancy. And as you point out, as per zip codes, uh, it's, it's true that certain parts of the country uh, where you have higher concentrations of low income uh, folks that that can have a significant impact on their health and ultimately on their life expectancy. Mm. 
You're a geriatric medicine physician, so we heard from Elaine, who's participating in the superager study, and she talked a lot about all the activities that she was doing and that connection she still has with her children. And so I wanted you to talk more about that in relation to what you see with your patients, uh, the fact that people who are more isolated, you know, how that impacts them uh, long term. So again, as was pointed out earlier, uh, social engagement, having a sense of purpose, having a sense of mission, uh, these factors are very important when it comes to health uh, and longevity, as we're talking about this morning, uh, and to function. Uh, So historically, and I think this is fair to say, and I think this is true for the Medicare wellness visit, physicians have often concentrated on what we can do to prevent our patients from dying prematurely. And clearly that's important. So preventing heart disease, preventing cancer, preventing life-threatening infections. Uh, But I think we need to spend more time thinking about some of these psychosocial determinants of health, a person's sense of value, their worth, um, the social engagements that they have with others. Uh, This is something that requires much more attention from my perspective. So you wrote earlier uh, in the Journal of the American Geriatrics Society that this current Medicare annual wellness visit, while free, doesn't sufficiently consider, you know, this uh, very diversity of older adults. So tell us more about how these wellness visits uh, usually go and what you'd like to see change uh, as we think about, you know, how to help uh, people age and remain healthy, not just treat disease. So Medicare's annual wellness visit was introduced as a part of the Affordable Care Act just over 10 years ago. And it was a very positive development from my perspective, uh, from what Medicare was doing. It's interesting, if you go back to the beginning of Medicare, Medicare was precluded from covering any forms of disease prevention or health promotion. Uh, Medicare now pays for a lot of different uh, interventions that would be considered uh, preventing disease or preventing uh, illnesses. And the Medicare wellness visit, which was introduced 10 years ago, concentrates for people over 65 to spend time with their healthcare provider, to concentrate on what they can do and what they shouldn't do to promote good health. Uh, There are required elements that a healthcare provider has to cover. Uh, And as we pointed out in our paper, uh, most of what is in there is good but we believe that there is the need to expand uh, the content off the wellness visit to customize it a little bit more to the patient's needs. So right now it's a one size fits all uh, visit, whether you're 65 and healthy or 95 and maybe dealing with a lot of chronic disability and disease, it's the same set of uh, requirements that have to be covered. Mm So when we think about uh, changing uh, how these these visits are structured, that starts with the the primary care physician who are also under time constraints. And so I wonder if you can talk more about that. Yeah, that's a fair comment. Uh, And I think, you know, I think if there's going to be an effort to retool these visits to I primarily better meet the needs of patients. I think some consideration also has to be given to how they best work for the providers that are giving this service. Um, Many primary care providers are very, very busy taking care of the diseases and illnesses that patients have. 
And so carving time out of their day to concentrate on wellness, they want to do it. We very much want to do this with our patients, but it can sometimes be a challenge to fit it into a busy day. Um, I believe that there are other members of the healthcare team who currently can participate and collect information and actually provide guidance uh, for patients. It doesn't have to be the primary care physician that's spending all of their time on this particular uh, intervention. Uh, but yes, I think their input is important as we might look at how we can improve these visits. You're hearing Dr. Patrick Call, Medical Director for Senior Health at UConn Health, as we talk about uh, aging well and the importance of wellness outcomes, not just focusing on uh, disease, but in ways to prevent and then help people have uh, a better outcome as they age. I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Call, if you've seen many patients who are 95 and older, and what, what habits or even uh, environment are they living in that you see some commonalities, if at all? Yes, in our practice, uh, we have many patients uh, in their 90s and quite a few patients in their 100s. Since I entered medical practice 35 years ago, I've seen a huge increase in the number of patients that I'm seeing who are in their 90s and in their 100s. And as was pointed out earlier, there's a great deal of variation in terms of why those patients have lived as long as they have. Um, if I was to say that there was a common theme among them, uh, I would say, first of all, they stopped smoking. You know, in that cohort of uh, people who are now in their 90s, smoking when they were younger was much more common than it is now. Uh, and if you didn't stop smoking within that cohort, you probably would be very unlikely to survive into your 90s. So not smoking, uh, exercising on a regular basis, uh, eating a heart-healthy diet, uh, and being socially engaged with a sense of mission in your life, I would say in very broad terms, uh, those would be attributes that these patients tend to have. Uh, Ailey on Facebook shared this comment. Uh, she would say access to excellent health care certainly helps. But she also writes, uh, Patrick, I have several ancestors who lived to beyond 90, and that was back in the 17 to early 1800s. I wonder if you can uh, respond there. Yeah, so we talked earlier about health, the lifespan, you know, how long a human might live. Uh, and that number hasn't changed. You know, the maximum number of years that any human might have lived, let's say we could say for argument's sake is 115 or 110. Very few humans even now live to be that old. But in the past, there were, and we know this, that there were people who lived into their 90s, even in the 1700s, but they were very few. Uh, they were much rarer than is the case now. Uh, the demographics are very clear that we have so many more people living into their 80s and 90s than was the case 50, 100, or 150 years ago. And I would just point out that, you know, we're talking about longevity, which I think is very important. But my patients, when I ask them about this, they will say, you know, of course, I would like to live a long life but I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be disabled uh, at the end of my life. And if that is the cost I have to pay to live to be an extreme old age, then I don't want that. Wow. And how do you respond when, when they share that with you? I, I understand what they're saying completely. Um, 
And I think this is where, uh, as part of our wellness approach to patients, we need to think more about what can be done to maximize function uh, and independence. Uh, and I would say that probably the most important aspect of that recommendation from my perspective is to talk to my patients about the importance of exercise. So my patients who are older uh, may have a variety of illnesses and diseases, uh, and sometimes that can lead to decreased mobility, uh, trouble getting up and moving around, even simple things like getting out of a chair or getting out of bed. So I tell my patients who are not at that level of disability now that they can prevent that from happening, but they have to take an active role. Uh, they have to concentrate on exercise and particularly muscle strengthening exercises. We lose muscle, we lose muscle mass with increasing age, but there's a lot that you can do to preserve that muscle function uh, and to preserve that function with regards to mobility so that you're able to get up and move around by yourself. You don't need help and you can be this most important word for older adults. You can be independent. Again, that's Dr. Patrick Call, Medical Director for Senior Health at UConn Health. Uh, Dr. Sophia Millman is still with us, who's a principal investigator in this super-agers study that we learned about. Uh, Lily from Griswold has a question related to that study. Lily, go ahead. Oh, uh, thank you. Um, and I would like to say I really uh, agree with all the comments that Dr. Call just made. I work in elder care. I'm a, a, just a nursing assistant, currently a nursing student. And um, my question is, are they in this superager study really looking into the mental health of the superagers? Because my observation with the patients that I care for, the ones in their late 90s and even uh, the greatest, my favorite, is 100 years old and the most independent person in the building, um, do they look at their mental health and how happy? Um, my observation is, such people are very happy. They do have a close connection with their adult children. They read a lot. And overall, they do live without stress and fear. And I also observed that one such lady who is about 94 had a fall and did break a hip. It's like the fourth time in her life she's done that. And she's recovering quickly again with will, willpower and strength of mind. So I just wonder if this is something they're giving consideration in the study. Thank you for that question and for sharing that with us, uh, Lily. Uh, Sophia, can you respond? Sure. Thank you uh, for, for raising that, Lily. Um, and there certainly have been studies in superagers that have shown that they have a more positive outlook on life. And undoubtedly, that probably plays at least some role um, in their ability to overcome challenges, um, this kind of mental resilience, right, to be able to uh, withstand the stressors um, and continue to see the positive in life. So they're not only physically resilient where they might be able to bounce back uh, from physical illness, uh, but probably have a, factors that are associated with mental resilience as well. 
We also heard from Carl on Facebook, and he had another question for you, uh, Sophia. Um, Studies are showing that people with certain DNA markers who have COVID will see early onset of Alzheimer's, respiratory, and cardiac issues. Wants to know how that will play into your study. What can you tell him? So I think we still have a lot to learn uh, about the impact, um, the long-term impact of covid um, and there are a lot of uh, researchers who are looking into that. Uh, in our study, we will be uh, gathering information on whether individuals uh, had COVID, um, and hopefully we'll have more answers um, in the future. Again, that's Dr. Sophia Millman, Director of Human Longevity Studies at Einstein's Institute for Aging Research in New York City. Also, Dr. Patrick Call is with us, Medical Director for Senior Health at UConn Health as we talk about longevity. Coming up after the break, we're going to continue talking with them and also talking about uh, what biotech um, we'll be doing in relation to longevity and aging. I did want to share a comment from Ken in New Haven who told us, I moved to Florida and learned everything about nutrition. Nutrition is really important, and so is the Bible. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for Connecticut. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about longevity today with my guests. Now, how will research into aging help expand the promise of therapeutics to extend the number of healthy years we could live? Dr. Sophia Millman is still with us, Director of Human Longevity Studies at Einstein's Institute for Aging Research. So I understand, uh, Sophia, that anti-aging therapeutics are a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, One company is developing ways to block protein buildup that accelerates aging. There's another looking at products from stem cells to replace damaged tissues. So what do you find most promising? I think some of the promising therapies um, are the ones that target pathways uh, that have been consistently shown to impact the rate of aging. Uh, There's been decades of research now into the actual biological mechanisms that drive aging. And you know, once it was recognized that aging is a biological process, you know, just like developing high blood pressure or developing heart disease, um, there are biological drivers of aging, uh, then it became clear that we could try and target those biological drivers of aging in order to extend um, not only the lifespan, but the health span. And I completely agree with Dr. Call that our goal really should be expanding the number of healthy years that an individual lives so that they can maintain their quality of life uh, and their independence. And so some of these pathways um, that have been repeatedly shown to extend um, healthy lifespan in many models that have been studied um, include, as you've mentioned, um, compounds that maintain um, a cell's ability uh, to clear itself of debris or buildup that occurs with aging. Um, also, there are certain cells uh, that stop dividing 
uh, and yet they don't die, and they're called senescent cells. And these cells often secrete uh, inflammatory markers that may promote um, aging. And so there are also certain uh, therapeutics um, that have been developed now uh, that are being actually tested in some small clinical trials that rid the body of these senescent cells um, in an effort uh, to reduce this inflammatory response that may be driving aging. Now, when we talk about therapeutics, so one day, is it possible that, that we could be taking a pill that would help with some of these, uh, uh, these aging effects uh, like we would if we, you know, um, had a, a particular disease and needed medicine for that? I believe so. And I think, you know, this is real science. This is not science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not some magic uh, hocus pocus um, because we can identify these biological drivers of aging, that's really no different, you know, as the biological drivers of heart disease, right? And we have medications to reduce the risk of heart disease. So there's no reason why we couldn't create uh, therapeutics that would target those biological pathways that drive aging and delay uh, the onset of aging and onset of age-related diseases. Mm. But what are the, I guess, the the barriers to that now? So the FDA, when they think about approval for uh, drugs to treat certain diseases, you know, aging is seen as a natural process. And so can pharmaceuticals at this point really develop drugs for aging, Sophia? So that is a very important point that you raise. Uh, the FDA currently does not have an indication uh, to treat aging, uh, and that has been a barrier uh, to drug development, although uh, many um, companies have pursued that anyway uh, with anticipation that the FDA may change course. Um, And in reality, you know, by targeting aging, by delaying aging, you have the ability to delay multiple diseases simultaneously because we feel that aging is a contributor, and we have evidence for that as well, to many diseases, um, including heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, um, dementias. And so by actually targeting the aging process itself, you can have an impact on many of these diseases simultaneously. Mm. Uh, When we think about uh, how uh, drugs will be developed in the future, or they're working on it now, you know, how they'll be priced, right? You know, who will be able to have uh, access to this particular uh, medicine? Uh, you know, as we see um, how phar- pharmaceuticals uh, price uh, certain medications now. Yeah, that certainly uh, will be important, and we want to ensure that everyone has equal access uh, to these medications. And the reality is, it will be advantageous. Uh, for our society to provide access uh, to these medications because A, it will improve the quality of life and independence of older adults, and then they can continue contributing to society uh, for many more years. So that will be uh, an advantage uh, to our society, to our economy. Uh, Additionally, there will be cost savings uh, to our healthcare system because if people will not be getting diseases or they will be getting them much later in life and hopefully um, deal with those chronic conditions for a shorter period than they would have otherwise, that would be a savings to the healthcare system. Now, there is a you know, possibility of using um, medications that are inexpensive or currently generic uh, for extension of healthy lifespan. And there is a study that is um, 
underway called uh, Targeting Aging with Metformin Study, which is uh, co-sponsored by the American Federation for Aging Research, uh, that aims to use metformin, uh, which is an inexpensive um, drug that is currently FDA approved to treat diabetes, but that has been shown to have multiple beneficial effects beyond um, treating diabetes. Um, it has been shown to prevent diabetes. Um, in some studies, um, it has been shown to prevent cardiovascular disease, has also been suggested to reduce the risk of cancer and possibly even um, cognitive decline. And so there's very active work now being done to use uh, that medication to study to delay aging. And there is an ongoing study uh, with metformin to actually see if it can delay frailty. Uh, Dr. Patrick Call is still with us from UConn Health. I'd love to get your perspective. We just have a couple of minutes, but when we think about longevity, uh, biotechnology, you know, what are your thoughts, Dr. Call? Yeah, I think it's a very exciting area of research. Uh, and as has been pointed out, so many diseases become so much more common with increasing age. And so looking at the aging process and how we can manipulate the expression of whatever those determinants are uh, related to age definitely has the potential to have a positive impact on the outcome and incidence of age-associated diseases. I would just add, you know, that I think this research, again, is very important, but under the current construct of disease prevention and health promotion, We've talked about these Medicare wellness visits. And so I would encourage your listeners, Lucy, who have Medicare to reach out to their primary care doctors. If you've not had a wellness visit, uh, you're entitled to one. It's a no cost visit. There's no copay, there's no deductible. Um, and I would encourage you to make those appointments, get out there, talk to your healthcare providers, because there's a lot that you can do now, short of what the research might tell us works in the future. There's a lot that you can do now to maintain, to maintain your health and wellness into your advanced old age. Again, that's Dr. Patrick Call, Medical Director for Senior Health at UConn Health. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Also Hi. with us today on Zoom, Dr. Sophia Millman, Director of Human Longevity Studies at Einstein's Institute for Aging Research. We'll, we'll be sure to check in with you to learn more about super agers as that study launches. Thank you for your time today, Sophia. Thank you, Lucy. It's been a pleasure. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Tess Terrible was on the phones today. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>